We're going to turn our attention to the first part of the book of Hebrews. So I invite you to take your personal copy of the scriptures and open them to the book of Hebrews. We'll just be looking at the first four verses. When you look at the book of Hebrews, it is a most unusual book, unlike the other New Testament books. For each of the New Testament books starts out usually with an author, with the people he's writing to, and usually the circumstances surrounding that particular recipient. So that when you come to the book, you have all these defining focuses. But now the writer of Hebrews does something unique. He simply starts with Jesus. And this is going to be the focus of the book. It's interesting that we know nothing about the circumstances, author, or recipients because I believe the author of Hebrews wants us to focus our attention on this one Jesus Christ. You find that 11 times the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is better. And the emphasis of the book is Don't think about other things. Focus on Jesus. He'll say in chapter 12, verse 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And so the the theme of this book is true confidence in Jesus must be the basis of our life and our identity as believers. Now, I want you to look at this verse because what the writer of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to count out seven things crammed into these few verses about this one to whom our life depends and on whom our identity must be achieved. So look at your scripture. God after he had spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets at many times and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, the son, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he, the Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. And being so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we want to see Jesus. We want to understand why so much importance is given to him. Why we will sing hymns that say Jesus must be first.
Why we will in a few moments say, sing the song, All Praise to Him Who Reigns Above in Majesty Supreme. Blessed be the name, blessed be the name. Lord, teach us about this one who is to have preeminence, the one who is called Supreme. Not only may we see him, but through these words, through my humble words, may our hearts be impressed with the necessity to rest on him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at seven things. Seven things about this Savior. Notice the writer of Hebrews begins by saying Jesus The Son of God is God's final and decisive word. What we find in this first verse is that the writer teaches us that God has spoken in two phases. Before the coming of Jesus into the world and through the Son of God who has come into the world. Before Jesus, God's typical way of communicating with his people as a whole was by inspired prophets as his go-between. Peter, though, tells us in the first chapter of 1 Peter that the message of the prophets was not decisively clear. As a matter of fact, Peter says, even the prophets themselves searched the words of God to determine the times and places of the Messiah that they spoke about. Even angels longed to look into it. So what you find in that first phase of God's revelation, the new is not clear. You will have to come to Jesus for the new to be clear and the old explained. So in times past he spoke, but now in the latter days he has spoken to us through his son. He's given us a superior, decisive, complete revelation in and through his son. And by saying that, what we do is the scriptures, the writer of Hebrew comes in diametric opposition to many of the worldviews today. The most current and pervasive worldview today is pluralism. Matt Slick, an apologist, says pluralism is a catch-all phrase that can be used in different contexts to designate a more than one opinion philosophy. In other words, In religion, there are more ways to God than you can almost imagine. And you cannot say one is not true as opposed to another. In the area of morality, you cannot say marriage is this because marriage is being reinvented almost daily. You cannot say a man is this and a woman is this Because that is changing. It seems like almost every 
Every week, a new initial is added to the LBGJQXRZ. You know, it just keeps going. Why is that? Because there's not one truth. What people determine in their hearts is true. And by golly, if you say it's not, you will find out that there is a cancel culture that is very vicious. Just go on Facebook and say, I believe that marriage is between a biological man and a biological woman. Guess what will happen? You'll be cut out. You'll be canceled. And so pluralism says... There is no true word. But now what do the scriptures say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth comes in the decisive words of Jesus Christ. Notice also that it goes against the worldview of Islam. Islam believes Jesus was a prophet, but you had to have another greater prophet that came later. The writer of Hebrews is standing up on his toes and he's saying, No, Jesus is God's final word, not Muhammad. Jesus is God's fullest revelation of who he is and how he saves. We live in a day and age where cults are expanding in the world. And each one of them claims further revelation. A new and much fuller revelation. And the author of Hebrews says, no, Jesus is the final and decisive word. Someone said, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read the Bible out loud. <laughs> Notice the second declaration about the Lord Jesus. He is the heir of all things. God has appointed him that. Now I can think of two reasons why God says he has spoken in these latter days and then he appointed Jesus heir of all things. There are two reasons why he says that. The first one is because he wants us to dwell upon the fact that the one we listen to, Jesus, the Son of God, can make good in the end on all of his promises. Why? Because see, he's the heir of all things. In the end... He will have at his disposal all things. He will have in subjection to himself all that is. John Piper puts it this way, and I quote, What does it mean to listen to a spokesman of God 
who in the end will have under his complete control and ownership all lands, all waters, all fire, all wind, all energy, all natural resources, all nations, all military might, all buildings, all bacteria and virus, all angels, all demons, all spiritual and material beings except for God the Father himself. Well, it means he can make good on all of his promises. So that brings us to the second thing. The second reason God made him or appointed him heir of all things is to bless all of us who put our trust in him. The scripture tells us that by faith we share in his inheritance. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 says this. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. What's the implication? Well, it's the the verse that uh, Wayne Marsh quoted before he prayed. Colossians, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Where? In Christ. You have been blessed. This is why God appointed him heir of all things. But notice the third declaration about this one who is preeminent. Why is he preeminent? Well, thirdly, God made the worlds through him. In one of the alcoves of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, there is a grave and a stone marker. The marker reads, here in its foundations lies the architect of this church and city, Christopher Wren, who lived beyond 90 years, not for his own profit, but for the public good. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. Now let me share a little bit about this man's life with you. Christopher Wren was appointed professor of astronomy at Gresham College in London, but then four years later he became the professor of astronomy at Oxford University. In 1662, he was one of the founding fathers of the most prestigious societies or fraternities of scientists when he and other men formed the Royal Society of Science in Great Britain. Wren's interest in architecture developed by his study of physics and engineering. In 1664 and 65, he was commissioned to design the Sheldonian Theater in Oxford and the chapel for Pembroke College at Cambridge. You see, the universities could not but be treated the same. And from that point on, 
Architecture became his main focus. A year later in 1666, a great fire just about destroyed the medieval city portion of London. And it provided a huge opportunity for Wren. He produced ambitious plans for rebuilding the whole area. But they were rejected because homeowners wanted to put up their own dwellings on their own lot. But he designed 51 new churches as well as St. Paul's Cathedral. In 69, he was appointed surveyor of the royal works by the king, which inevitably gave him control over all the government building in the country. In 75, he was commissioned to design the Royal Observatory at Greenwich. In 82, he became designed a hospital in Chelsea for retired soldiers and a hospital for sailors in Greenwich. Other buildings included Trinity College Library at Cambridge. And the creme de la creme is he designed the facade for Hampton Court Palace. Every time you see the queen or the king step out on that porch, you're looking at Christopher Wren's work. He died the 25th of February. His birthday will be celebrated in just a few weeks. His gravestone features the Latin phrase translated If you seek his memorial, look around you. If you seek his memorial, realize that God made him, appointed him to be the creator of all things. So that Psalm 19 says, the heavens tell the glory of God and their expanse declares the work of his hand. Look around you. It is his memorial. John 1.3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. If you would seek Jesus' memorial, simply look around you. He is supreme. But notice fourthly, let's go on. The clock is running out for me in the back. Notice in verse 3 that it says, fourthly, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. Paul expresses it this way. When he says, the God who said, light shall shine out of darkness... That God is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Would you see the magnificence of God? Would you crave to do that? Then meditate on Jesus. Notice he goes on to say he's the exact representation of, of the Father's nature, of God's nature. 
Michael Ramsey, a former Archbishop of Canterbury, put it like this. Listen very carefully. God, God is Christ-like. And there is no unchrist-likeness in him at all. Now that is a beautiful and brilliant way to say that all that represents God is found in Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so, do you want to know God? Do you want to know him in his richness? Then daily meditate on Jesus and you will see it all. Notice fifthly, goes going on in verse 3. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Do you know that the Greeks in their mythology have Atlas holding up the world? And all of us know Atlas is buffed. No fat at all. All muscle holding up the world. As a matter of fact, if you go to the Rockefeller Center... In New York City, there coming out of the doors is a bronze statue of Atlas supporting the globe. Have any of you seen it? Ah, yes, some of you have. But now, if you walk across Fifth Avenue and down a little bit into St. Patrick's Cathedral, back in one of the alcoves is a statue of the Mother Mary holding not the infant Jesus, but the child Jesus. And the child Jesus has a globe in his hand. Do you realize that Jesus sustained all that was, even as an infant and a child? Even in that weak state, even in a state where a mother would have to care for him. He was upholding all things. Now, that's easy for us to say. But it's often hard to really trust that God has our world in his hands. George Bedry and I and his wife Joyce and my wife Beth we ate uh, supper together Friday night. And George and I had an extended conversation, and part of that conversation was talking about the struggles that each of us faced in our lives. Now, I'm going to pick on George a little bit. I didn't ask him if I could, so I hope he doesn't mind. But George had knee surgery in 2021. It wasn't long after that a pimple appeared on the scar on his knee. He said, man, this is really strange. Talked to his doctor. The doctor just said, well, just kind of watch it. But that pimple developed into a full-blown boil. When he 
Found his doctor up. Doctor said, send me a picture. Sent a picture. And the doctor said, you get to the emergency room right now. That was this past Christmas, I believe, wasn't it, George? This past Christmas. He had to go back into surgery and have it opened up because he had developed a staph infection in his knee. Not only did the wound get opened up, but he had to go on a regimented intravenous cocktail of antibiotics. And for months, his nurse wife injected antibiotics into him every day. George told me, it was during this time, he got rather bitter. God, why did this happen to me? I'm yours. Why is it happening? And I'll have to admit, uh, George, I told him about my circumstances where I fretted and worried about God being my provider. All of us have things like that. And it may be that some of you here today are going through struggles that you say, why me? Why now? Why no relief? George is the type of guy, he talks with everybody. He called up Pastor John for counsel. And one time he called up Richard Drew. Now, I don't know if you know, Richard Drew went through the same thing with his knee. Months of treatments. And Richard Drew counseled George saying, you have to think spiritually about your trial, not just physically. Now, my friends, that's probably better advice than John gave him. <clears throat> better advice than a pastor would give. How do we face the struggles and know that he has us in his hands? My friends, you have to go to Jesus. You have to feast your eyes upon him spiritually. You have to understand that he is the one who holds up all things by the word of his power. What are you facing? I encourage you to think spiritually about the Savior who's holding you and your problem in his hand. Notice sixthly, we're just about there, folks. Number six is Jesus has completed the work of purification. It says, he had made purification for sins. Now the verb here is a perfect tense. It speaks of an action that happened in the past that has continuing impact. And what you find is what Isaiah encourages us to do. When Isaiah chapter 1, he says, come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. It's only because he has made purification for our sins. A little later, Isaiah will speak in a personal, experiential sense when he says, I will rejoice in the Lord, my soul will exalt in my God, 
For he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. Oh, my friends. If you have not grasped, if you not, have not experienced that conscience clearing, that mind enriching, that soul rejoicing forgiveness of your sins, oh, go to Jesus. Go to him until you have that forgiveness. He says, simply come bringing nothing. Rest in me and I will cleanse you. There's nothing better than your sins being made pure and white. Being wrapped in the robe of his righteousness. Notice finally. Now I'm not few through because I'm going to give some applications afterwards. But notice number seven. Don't laugh at me. Number seven. Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. Now sitting at the right hand in the New Testament and the Old Testament is a picture of reigning. Do you remember Psalm 110? Where the psalmist says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And Jesus sat down at the place of reign, honor, and rule. He is the Lord. Now, let me apply that with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. This is a quote that comes from the last sermon he preached before he died. Now, if you're sleepy... Just kind of shake your head a little bit and listen. Spurgeon said, those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it, you'll either serve Satan or Christ, either self or Savior. You'll find sin, self, Satan, and the world to be a hard master. But if you wear the livery of Christ, you'll find him so meek and lowly of heart that you'll find rest for your souls. He is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choicest of princes. He is always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the winds blow cold, he always takes the bleakest side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind, and tender, yea, lavish and superabundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more have I served him. Blessed be his name. And I have nothing but love for him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleases him. His service is life, peace, 
and joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once. God, help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus this day. My friend, I cannot but most earnestly plea for you to find yourself under the banner of Christ's love. Let me make four applications. Sorry, I'm five minutes into your time, but give me another five. The first of the applications is we are to bow the knee Worship and adore Jesus as Lord of our lives. Now, that's just not something a preacher says, but it's actually something that God the Father himself says. Listen to Philippians 2 verse 9. It's Paul writes, For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And those in heaven and on earth and under the earth that every tongue will confess Jesus is my king. It's the glory of God the Father. It really actually says Jesus is Lord. But that's what he means. Now notice he says it is our responsibility to bow the knee and worship and exalt our Savior. For God has made that his plan. Secondly, we are to display in everything we say and do the glory of our Savior. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything. Application number three. We're always to be thankful for all things. Why? Because Jesus is the heir of all things. And he upholds all things with the word of his mouth. Ephesians 5, 20 says this, always give thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, we are to depend upon him as the source of every blessing God has reserved for us. I've already quoted Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Jesus. That's where we will find our strength and our help. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Oh, my friend, rejoice, worship, and bow the knee.